Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal during these SALT Talks is the same as at our global conference series, the SALT Conference, which you may have heard of if you're participating in these webinars, uh, which are conferences that we hold in the U.S. and internationally every year. And what we try to do at those conferences and on these talks is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to feature one of those big ideas, and we're very excited to welcome Josh Geigel to SALT Talks. Josh is the chief technical officer and the co-founder of Virgin Hyperloop, where he's leading a world-class team of engineers making the Hyperloop a reality. Josh founded the company in 2014 when Hyperloop was an idea drawn on a whiteboard in a garage. A little over two years later, Virgin Hyperloop built a full-scale prototype capturing the attention of governments around the world. Uh, previously at SpaceX, Josh developed the world's first reusable rockets and led the successful testing of six different rocket engines. From the final frontier to the horizon right on the ground, uh, Josh shifted his focus to the power of the Earth, of the earth uh, with revolutionary waste, heat-to-power energy technology, leading research activities at Ecogen Power Systems. Josh is passionate about the power of engineering to create solutions that enable people to live their lives how they want, where they want, in a way that is sustainable. This led him to leverage his expertise in high-performance rocket engines with his grasp of clean energy generation to develop the world's first autonomous, high-performance electric mode of mass transportation. Josh received his MS in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, where he was a graduate engineering fellow. He holds his BSME from Penn State University, where he graduated with honors and was first in his class. And I know from talking before we went live, he's a proud Pittsburgh native. Uh, if you have any questions for Josh during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And I'm going to be hosting today's talk. Normally, I would kick it over to Anthony Scaramucci or another guest host, but today you're stuck with me. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. We like to start every talk with the discussion of the guest's background and sort of their journey, their personal journey, their professional journey. So how did you grow up? How did you uh, get into the career you did starting at SpaceX, you know, moving into renewable energies? And now what caused you to want to start working on the Hyperloop? Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate the invitation. So, yeah, the you know the part that I think is pretty pretty exciting, but also maybe part of a punchline to a joke is uh, I'm one of everyone in my family is an engineer. So my mom, dad, sister, sister's husband, my wife, uh, we're all engineers, and so that really gave me you know one of of many options as you could possibly imagine growing up to a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. Uh, our vacations would be like going to like national laboratories or the Air and Space Museum or or the like. But the part that really got me excited about engineering was, you know, spending time with my dad, building things, working on cars and the like. And, and the power of of being an engineer, which was like, I used to think, you know, like, how does my dad know all the answers to all of these different things? Um, and the answer was he did it. He just knew how to problem solve. He knew how to like go through the the processes and to me, that was really like, it was exciting that, you know, as an engineer, I didn't know what I was going to be doing in five or 10 years, but I knew I'd be excited by it. And, and I could sit and I could basically predict the future 
from sort of the, the imagination space that you have in your head through being able to calculate it, compute, compute it in the, uh, on the computer as we go forward. And, and so then it was a pretty easy pick for me to uh, want to do engineering in school. Uh, and then went to Penn State for undergrad, which was a, uh, it was an exciting time. I mean, I think Penn State does, you know, well with sort of like people that grow up within the state and <clears throat> really giving them a good kind of technical education. And my eyes really got open going to grad school at Stanford about what the power of being an engineer could be, which is, you know, to imagine the future you want to live in and then go create it. And you started to feel this, like this energy, this vibe, this buzz. And uh, I had got from a former colleague as a, before who said, you should go check out this company called SpaceX. Um, this is when I was about ready to do some, you know, qualifications for the PhD and, and the like. And I went down to SpaceX. This was right before they had their first successful flight in 2008. And there was just an energy. There was just a buzz. It was a small company interviewed with Elon. And it was, uh, it was kind of that transformational moment. And I remember talking to my advisor and he described what my PhD would look like. And I said, there's nothing I'd rather do less than what you just described. <laughs> um, so then I ended up going over to, to SpaceX, building rockets, getting the chance to, to build something brand new and, and have more responsibility than a 23-year-old should have. And I uh, successfully did that. And then started to realize like, you know, rockets are great. What we're going to do, make life interplanetary. That's like awesome as well. But like, I really started to focus on the opportunity, the, the responsibility of the engineer here on earth, started to go to some like new ways to make power, some using carbon dioxide and things like that, built some really successful things there. And then really started to look at this transportation space and think like, wow, like a, no one's built anything like Hyperloop before when Elon put out the white paper B it's going to be around long after we're gone. It can change. It can reduce emissions. It can make the environment more sustainable. More importantly, the mission of the engineer is to let, let people live the way they want to live without destroying the world around them. And uh, this is big enough and hard enough to be fun. It's, it's, it's of a scale that's going to be around long after I'm gone and we're gone. And that's the part that is just truly exciting about it. So before we dive deeper into the Hyperloop, I want to talk about SpaceX and space for a minute. You were obviously fascinated by, uh, you know, rocketry and exploring space. What do you think the future for uh, the human civilization is in space? And what timeline do you think it's going to be for us to really start, uh, you know, launching mass space tourism and colonies within space? You know, that's, that's a good one. I think the, the part that you know, we, we landed on the moon like 50 years ago and we have been stuck in like low earth orbit ever since. It's not the technology. I think the technology when, when pushed can actually do what we want to do. I mean, we probably could have gone to Mars in the eighties if we really put our mind to it. Uh, I think this, the aspect of this becoming privatized though is, is really exciting. Like you see what SpaceX has been able to do. You see probably about a dozen small rocket companies now that are popping up. A lot of them are former people I worked with that are starting them. Right. And uh, you're seeing this like kind of proliferation because people are able, the technology is there, the cost of access is, is, is reducing. Um, and I think we're, we're just tapping the surface, but I do truly believe it's gonna be the private companies that are going to do it. I think, you know, I, I, I interned at NASA. I met my wife at NASA, but I think uh, the, the days, the days of like kind of this big government piece are over because there's, there's profit to be made. There's money to be made, you know, whether it's mining asteroids or, or doing something else. I mean, I think the opportunity is going to be private. And I, I would suspect by the end of this decade, so like 2030, um, you're going to start to see 
some of the advances, you're going to start to see things move away from like chemical rockets, which is really kind of keeping us parked here into some more exotic technologies that I think will take us, you know, to Mars and to the stars. Well, between SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic, you have some well-capitalized uh, individuals that are pursuing yes. these goals in space. So hopefully that'll lead us to a, you know, more rapid development than we would if it was a public sector uh, government project. Well, I want to jump into Hyperloop. So your, your ambitions went from space to what can I do here on the ground on Earth? And you started a Hyperloop company. Could you explain for people who are less familiar with Hyperloop first what it is? So what we're trying to do is move people at airline speeds, but here on the ground. And so if we just dive into that a little bit more, uh, we want to move at the speed of an aircraft. We want to have fully electric propulsion direct to your destination. So unlike a train, um, you're going direct to where you want to go. You're not stopping at every place along the way. Uh, And then doing that again, in a on-demand sense. So you're not waiting for a timetable, you're showing up when you wanna show up. So it's sort of taking the advantages of air, which is speed, the advantages of rail, which is capacity, the advantages of like ride sharing, which is this on-demand, and trying to put them all together. So what we do is we create a tube. Uh, in that tube, we take out most of the air, not all of the air, it'd be f- like flying at 50 kilometers of altitude or 200,000 feet of altitude. So you can go those speeds with really little drag. And so very low energy consumption. Um, so you can go these speeds and, and then we use electromagnetic propulsion and levitation that gives us contactless high speed, basically the ability to move it at those speeds without touching anything on the sides of the track. All things that we've developed and invented here at Virgin Hyperloop over the last really two to three years as we've progressed the technology. Um, and then the goal really is to let people move at these speeds for a cost that's not any different than, you know, a bus ticket or a train ticket, but you get this like much wilder, much more inventive space where you can live in one city, you can work in another, you could live in New York, you could work in Washington, DC, and you could take this in a daily type of setting. Um, But to do that, we have to do it at scale, we have to do that at speed. And then more importantly, we have to do it safely. So you talked about how you started this company back when the concept of a Hyperloop was just something on a whiteboard. You know, Elon Musk basically sketched it out and said, we need to build this. I'm going to make this open source. I want to allow anyone to work on this technology. From when you started the company to today, what are some challenges that you faced that you either expected and some that you might have not expected uh, as you've been on this journey? And, And what do you think the opportunity is in terms of how widely we can adopt Hyperloop going forward? Yeah, I think uh, every every now and then I, I think back in those garage days and the garage days were filled with like technology development, right? Which is like, oh, we're going to do this. It's going to look like this. This is how we're going to achieve that. And, and the white paper talked about a particular way that you could make a Hyperloop. Uh, unfortunately, that way is not as energy efficient, economical as it needs to be. So we had to develop a brand new way of, of operating that. But I think the biggest challenges were it's one thing to build a technology, it's something completely different to build a company, something completely different to build a team, something completely different to build an industry. And we're trying to do all of those in addition to building a, a technology. And that, that piece, I think, in a way, has actually made the fact that the technology has worked and we've done all that more rewarding because you had to do all of these other things as, as we've gone through. But at the same time, uh, it's not the first thing that comes to mind as an engineer when you're like thinking about a new, a new technology. And 
and and that those days in the garage really I think were were some of the best days of of my life, one of some of the most exciting days of my life where you have infinite possibilities. You're unconstrained in terms of vision. Um, sometimes you could be paralyzed without constraints. Right. But that that view of like in its rawest form, like what is the future that we want, and how can technology get us there? Uh, like that was what I signed up for. And then the part that's been actually fun is like so it's the thing that sets sort of like the the research scientists or the physicists from the engineers that the engineers make things practical. Like I want to build things. I love building things. And that's ultimately what's setting us apart from some of the other people in the space. And ultimately from this, this, just this idea is that without, you know, without actually building it, without actually getting in it, without actually showing the technology works, no one's going to believe you. And over the last six years, we've had plenty and plenty of doubters, uh, and each time, each new milestone is just like another kind of arrow in the quiver of like, hey, we know how to build technology. We know how to do it. And this is not decades away. This is going to happen like in the next decade. So when we talk about the future of Hyperloop and how it can transform uh, public transit around the world, is this something where we're going to be traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles or from New York to Philadelphia? Or is this something that you know, can be built such that we can travel between continents and it's going to be the primary source of, you know, on-ground public transportation? My goal is that this turns into the, the primary source of, of ground transportation. And I'll, I'll be even more specific. Like, I hope my little two-year-old comes to me in 20 years and says, Dad, how did you get around before Hyperloop? Like that's, that's the, that's the level of the ambition like that I'm what, trying to You wrote to a train, you wrote an Amtrak train that averages 30 miles an hour and yeah. takes, you know, longer than it would take to drive to go between major cities. Yeah. And you're going to pay like $300 to ride that train or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. Like that's not the future I want for him nor myself. Um, so, so what we view is, you know, if you look kind of throughout history, you could say every time we've connected each other faster, there's been a massive economic growth, a massive GDP growth. You could say Roman roads, you could say Spanish ships, you could say the transcontinental road, the airplane, even the internet, all forms of connectivity. But we haven't seen the same level of innovation, same level of development on the, the mass transportation space as we've seen with the, some of these other areas. And so we want to keep growing, want to be more connected, but yet our infrastructure, the speed of our infrastructure is actually restraining us. We've gone, we've gone backwards, actually. You know, we, we had supersonic airplanes, and for a variety of reasons, you know, those were shelved, and we've actually gone backwards, especially in the United yeah. States. Yeah, and like the transatlantic times by flights have actually gone down because the energy consumption needs to be lower, and so they're slowing the speeds down. And, and so when you look at what this could be, if you start, if you started taking people off of uh, off of the road and started connecting, we'll call it just the U.S. for right now. Imagine you had a couple of basically, you know, highways, hyperloop highway systems that you know maybe two or three routes that went east to west, and you had a couple that went north to south, sort of crisscrossing the the grid. You could have same day connectivity for goods for people, um, and then do it in a way that's actually environmentally sustainable. So you could take all of the pollution that comes from transit of air, of road of that, you can move it to electric, which could be powered by, by renewables. And you could do that in a way that's actually satisfying the needs. Like right now, it takes four or five days to go from Los Angeles to Chicago on a train. 
So you can't really ship too many things in that case. But like, if you look at what, you know, the package you buy from Amazon, you want same day. But what if I could do same day from a central place in just make it up Nebraska, four corners of the US, and I can do that at the speed of flight, at the energy efficiency, you can combine that with autonomous last mile solutions. Um, you have a huge amount of opportunity. And then you could start to say, in the US, it's big enough that we could, we could do that. Our cities are farther apart. You want that speed, you want that benefit. Um, in Europe, in India, and in China, all these places are doing it. And you can see the massive potential because uh, the, uh, the salt road, the silk road in uh, China, being invested something on the order of about $100 billion right now to increase the average speed on that route from about 30 miles an hour to about 60 miles an hour. Like we're talking 10x that. And you're willing to put that kind of money in for for that type of connectivity. So I do think you can, can, again, let people live the way they want to live, but not destroy the environment. You can get them those speeds that on demand without having a massive energy footprint. So what type of speeds are we talking here at the upper end of, of what you think we can achieve? So we, we could go 1,000, 2,000 miles an hour in theory. You don't want to do that in practice because the tube would need to be too straight. So in reality, like between, you know, big runs between, say, you know, Denver and Chicago or something like that, your top speed would be something on the order of about five to 600 miles an hour. And earlier this month, you were the first ever human to travel in a hyperloop. So like you said, in theory and in practice, this is a little bit different because in theory, it would demand perfection of, you know, the construction, every element of the project. What what did it feel like to be in the hyperloop? And and do you think it's something that everyone is going to feel comfortable doing? So... I do think it'll be something that everybody feels comfortable in. And, and one of the reasons, you know, I, I wanted to be the first passenger in it is, you know, I, I subscribe to a leadership philosophy of this, like kind of the adage of, of the Roman architect, right? And the Roman architect, when you took the scaffolding out, had to stand under the arch to, to measure his worth as an architect. Um, and for me, if it wasn't safe enough for me, it wasn't going to be safe enough for everybody. And safe enough for me is, I've got a wife and a kid who by all accounts still enjoy my presence and wanted me as much as they wanted me to get in, they wanted me to get out even more. Um, And so the goal of what we are trying to do is also show that this is not for astronauts. This is not for, you know, risk takers or adventure seekers or whatever you want to do. Um, This is for normal everyday people. So Typically, if you're in an environment like in that tube, which is low pressure, you're in a spacesuit in case something goes wrong. But Sara, my co-passenger and I, and Sara is our director of passenger experience, we were just in normal clothes because we designed the system to be safe enough to deal with whatever could go wrong and do that in a way that allowed us to just be in normal everyday clothing. Um, so that was a huge piece for us is that we wanted to show that you know we can build, we can build great technology. We can build great products, but we have to build safe products. And the goal here was to show that like, hey, this is safe enough for two people to get in. I'm an engineer, Sarah's not. She didn't need to know all the things that could go wrong or that we made to make the system safe because she's trusted in the process. And that's the same thing we have to do to get something eventually certified. So what did it feel like? You you went, what, 100 miles an hour? Did it feel like you were on a roller coaster? Did it feel like you were in a, you know, a very low stress type of environment? What was the sensation when you were in the tube? Uh, aside from, uh, I would describe myself not as excited, but giddy. Um, so I was giddy getting into, Sarah and I were both giddy. 
And it was sensation wise, like it was kind of overwhelming to have like the history of building the company, getting to a spot where we were sitting in something that used to be an idea. And that was like profound before you even went down the track. But once you're sitting in, you know, you felt it was a little bit harder than our, uh, or sorry, faster than our normal acceleration would have been. So you feel a little bit of force back in your seat, like you would on an aircraft taking off. Right. Um, but once you, once the maglev is on, it's, you're not being jostled about, you're not being shaken in the same way, like you feel on a rail. It's actually kind of like, it's almost like floating in like a pool of water or something like that. And, uh, I mean, I think the only, the only bummer was that it was only, you know, about 400 yards long. So it was about a 20 second test. And, uh, it was kind of like, can we go again, guys? Can we go again? Was well, as we, uh, as we get into winter here, I'm yearning for a hyperloop that can take me from New York to where you are uh, in California for a little better weather. So hopefully you can get, uh, you know, speeding up on your development. But, um, you know, you talked about, the fact that you wanted to be the first one to step into the tube. It's the same thing Richard Branson, who who we know well, has spoken at our SALT conference uh, several times. Uh, he want, wants to be the first one with Virgin Galactic. He's going to be the first one to go into space as part of their space tourism. So, you know, it's a sort of certainly a noble stance to take in terms of safety. And it's one of those things where, you know, as soon as Tesla has an accident with one of its self-driving cars, it's splashed all over the newspaper, but they don't write about all the different accidents and the dangers that exist inherently with our current infrastructure, whether it be cars or the, the current technology behind trains. So, uh, you know, hopefully this becomes a, a zero risk proposition, which I, I think it has a much better chance of doing than traditional forms of transportation. Yeah, certainly, you know, we don't have people that can run across our street chasing a ball. We don't have weather. We don't have, you know, we're autonomous, but we're also actually like an easier form of autonomous, right? Because we're in a confined environment. And I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, progress, progress requires mistakes. um, And we have grown rightfully so like very risk averse to those type of mistakes, especially when people can get injured or or worse. Um, but like, so we have this ability to, to learn how to do these things faster in this kind of confined environment, which is actually a lot easier than the autonomous car companies have it these days. So what's it like raising capital for a company that has such a moonshot type of mission? You know, we've talked about some of the uh, space travel companies. They're obviously well capitalized by their founders. But, you know, when you're raising capital for a business that's financial uh, strength is going to be long down the road sometimes it can be a little bit challenging uh, and you have to get people to buy into that story. What's been the reaction from the genesis of your Hyperloop company to today and how reactor, how has investors reacted to the recent developments that have taken place, uh, you know, with your first test ride in the tube? So it's, it's been quite, quite a journey with that. I mean, I, I've been called a lot of things and I've been called a lot of things in those type of investor meetings. Um, I'll keep most of them to myself, but uh, at the beginning we really had, you know, kind of these, these, as you said, moonshot believers, like, hey, this could be a truly transformative technology. And that really funded, we've raised over $400 million to date. That really funded kind of the first $100 million or so. Um, but we all knew that this is not a software company. We're not building apps and things like that. This is a company building hardware. And that requires like a lot of capital. So we moved from some of those moonshot investors, some of those big guys, which, you know, huge risk takers, but smaller, smaller checkbooks and started moving into more of the strategic partner side of the fence. Um, So the strategic partner were people who are looking to uh, diversify some of their business interests or diversify some of their manufacturing capabilities. 
Um, and so started looking at a different type of, of investor. Um, the biggest one that we've had to date is a group called DP World, which is Dubai Ports. Um, and, and they wanted to move up. They typically move shipping containers. They own about 75 ports around the, around the world. But they wanted to move up into logistics chain. And, and the chairman, uh, Sultan bin Suliam, who's our chairman as well, he saw the opportunity that like, hey, this is going to transform the way goods can move. And I want to get in on that earlier. I want to use some of the automation technology, the, the magnetic levitation technology, and some of these other areas that can do that and started finding these strategic partners. And, you know, we've had ups and downs on, on the fundraising piece. And the, the part that's been challenging has been, you know, they want to see, does the technology work? Can it be made safe? Do you have a regulatory pathway? And do you have a customer? And so, you know, three, about three years ago, uh, we didn't have very many of those things. We had the, the path of technology, but it not working yet. And in the last three, we've shown that the technology works. Uh, here in the U.S., we've done a lot of work with the Department of Transportation over the last two years. And about four months ago, they issued like, this is how a Hyperloop would be regulated. This is the agency. Um, so that was great. Kind of clarified that. The third is we made it safe by the test that we did two weeks ago. Um, and the last piece is finding that customer. And the part that's been really exciting is since that test, people are saying like, oh, I thought that was 10, 20 years away that you would be able to get into a vehicle. And now I don't want to say my phone's been ringing off the hook, but the excitement from regulators, the excitement from people that are like, hey, I can use this for my project that's happening in the next five years, in the next 10 years, not a project in 2035 or 2040. This is something I should look at now. And so I've, I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of the aftermath of that test, really incentivizing and accelerating the idea that we can change the way that people are moving today and in the next decade, as opposed to, you know, 15 or 20 years from now. So California is a, an example. They had a high-speed rail project that's now sort of uh, been scrapped or at least postponed for the time being, because the thought is they're going to spend billions of dollars and the technology potentially would be obsolete by the time the, the project is done. How close are we to whether it's California or Dubai or, or China or other places, what has been the reaction from governments? You talked about how it's been very positive since you did the test run. How close are we to getting to the point where uh, governments, whether it's in the U.S. or internationally, are to actually appropriating funds to diligently build out uh, Hyperloop infrastructure? So we, in the U.S., we're targeting passenger certification of our commercial system. You know, we did a two-person test that's growing, pods getting bigger to about a 28-person pod. We're targeting that certification around 2025. Um, but the big key that came from the announcement four months ago from the Department of Transportation is that by saying that we're officially a mode of transportation that's subject to regulation, but also subject to public funding um, and the like, is a huge kind of a leap for us. So now we have access to things like uh, RIF loans and TIFIA loans to develop projects. Um, but you also look at where some of the incentives lie. So in the U.S., you know, the Department of Defense basically funds technology development, right? Department of Energy funds technology development slightly differently, but the Department of Transportation really doesn't. But for every, like, you know, dollar spent on, you know, better forms of connectivity, you get three or four dollars worth of GDP growth that comes out of it. But I think that that view of, like, high-speed rail is is accurate, Right. We're potentially spending billions of dollars on something that goes slower than a plane, costs more than a plane, and is a technology that's derived from stuff that's 100 years old. Uh, and that's what we're trying to sell something different is like, instead of doing that, you can build 
you know, a 21st century solution to 21st century problem. And with that, I think you're starting to see the government's move. You're starting to see some of those applicability uh, get there. And now we're laying out those steps to certification. So really that, that first person that's going the same way at the very beginning of the company, investors, those moonshot investors looked across the table and they said, this is a great idea, but I'm believing in you and the team that you're going to build to actually execute on it. I think we're moving away from it being a, you know, a moonshot idea to something that's actually like, it's about execution now. And that I think is actually fairly exciting. Um, you know, and actually part of, you know, part, part of the, the purpose of doing the test that we did two weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have just learned about something like SpaceX in the last several years because the rockets have been taking people to the space station and, and it's gotten more public attention. But as you talked about, that effort goes all the way back to 2008 and it feels like the Hyperloop uh, project is on a similar type of trajectory. Yeah. So you talked about your two-year-old son. I have a two-year-old. I have a couple more as well in that similar age category. Let's say 30 years down the road, you want to build this for our children so that, like you said, in the future, they look back at at regular cars and these slow trains and they say, dad, how the hell did you ever ride in that? In 30 years, when this is fully mature, just uh, create a a vision or an image for our audience about what is that going to look like? Is it going to be, I have my my smartphone and there's an app, there's a version Hyperloop app that acts like Uber. And I say, you know what, bring me a a car. I want to go to Chicago. And then, you know, two hours later on demand, I'm delivered onto a street corner in Chicago. When it's fully mature, what is it going to look like? I think the, the ethos that I've been really, you know, going for and really trying to understand is, you know, like my personal mission statement is I will change the world through the technology I build. But the, the vision for this company is really to be the fastest mode of transportation, not from when you leave your door, but when you think about leaving your door, when you think about where you want to go to your ultimate final destination. So I think in 30 years, you're going to have something that, is going to kind of look something like this. Like, I don't think there'll be smartphones anymore. I think there'll be something implanted somewhere deep seated into your brainstem somewhere. Right. Uh, and you'll have this notion of, I want to go, let's just say I'm living in New York. I want to go to DC. Um, so you're going to go to DC and then you're going to get basically this information of where you need to go. It's going to be seamless. It's going to be basically you, you step outside of your house. There'll be something, your last mile solution, whether that's an autonomous vehicle Uh, whether it's a scooter or something like that, that takes you to the Hyperloop station, the whole time it's basically telling you, you know, when you're walking in the station, turn left, turn right. Um, Here's your, here's your pod. You get on your pod, you sit down, you can pull out whatever entertainment work, whatever it might be. Um, It's taking you, taking you again, directly to this destination. You're getting out, you have that final vehicle or your last mile at the destination side waiting for you because it knew and tracked you through the whole journey. Um, there's no pay because that's tied into basically your, your personal identity as you go through um, securely, obviously. Uh, when it comes to actual physical security, I think you're starting to see you know, less, less intrusive, less, uh, less bulky types of security measures. You're not going to be taking bags out and things like that. There'll be ways for that to be seamless as you walk through. Um, and really this idea that Washington is no longer a city that it's not a hunt, it's not you know 200 300 miles away it's four hours away the thought is like washington becomes a suburb of new york right and and really anywhere becomes accessible as a suburb of where you're at and so this this thing you talked about coming to, to los angeles for the weather 
growing up in Pittsburgh, there were two things that you would need to do if you wanted to do activity. Uh, what's the activity and what's the weather going to be? Here in Los Angeles, it's what's the activity? Weather's always the same. And, right. and when you're going somewhere, you always think like, how do I get there? And that's what I think will actually no longer be a piece. Like, I don't think, how do I get there when I go downstairs? Right. And that, that type of thought process is going to be now extended to hundreds of miles in further destinations than we ever thought possible before. And it's a COVID friendly way to travel where you're not having to potentially intermingle with quite as many people. And I want to talk about the pandemic and the impact it's had both on your business and your vision for what Hyperloop can do. You know, there's a lot of data out there, recent stories about how many people have left San Francisco and New York City and other big cities around the country and moved to more remote areas. You know, remote work is becoming more popular. Secondary cities are expected to get a boost from this. Steve Case uh, is is someone who's been at our conferences and been on Assault Talk and hit one of his big theses is the rise of the rest. You're going to see these secondary U.S. cities and areas around the country see a boom in entrepreneurship. So you talked about how uh, improving the speed of physical infrastructure as well as the speed of internet infrastructure helps, you know, create economic growth in different areas. What, what do you expect to be, you know, first the impact of the pandemic on your business and the growth of Hyperloop in general? And two, what do you think the impacts of, you know, a more proliferation of Hyperloop technology bringing people more quickly to different areas of the country? What do you think that has in terms of its impact on the economy and uh, the future of work? So it's certainly been an, uh, an interesting time and we, we build hardware. We are a company that's kind of company, you know, all working in a spot. We didn't have anybody really working remotely before the pandemic hit. Uh, it's certainly been an adjustment to my leadership style. I really like being in there. I like building things. I like being out in the shop, seeing what's going on. Uh, so it's been a challenge to, to do in this remote setting. And so we've, we've changed the way that we've, we've worked some things. Uh, we have our test facility in Nevada. Um, it's been getting, it's been getting okay, but there's going to be a, you know, it's okay in kind of the, the short term sense, like this, if this lasts for another year, you know, we're really going to have to start considering, you know, how do we adjust kind of long-term because our goal is to get back to, to each other. And at the end of the day, like what we're doing, we might be engineers, but it's a creative endeavor, you know, instead of, paint, you know, our canvas is, you know, our canvas is technology and our paintbrush is science and math. And, and like this idea of how we actually work, you know, like a musician works really well with other musicians and with all the conversations being forced, it becomes a bit, a bit challenging. So we're trying some new ways. We're getting smaller groups together, like outside of some of our facilities to, to do that. You know, obviously the the latest surges, you know, probably going to put that on hold again, but I think it's going to continue to be challenging for companies like ours building hardware as opposed to doing software to, to keep it together. And uh, it is becoming interesting, right? Especially I've got a big software team doing like controls and the like, and now they can get pulled from anywhere to work anywhere and they can move to these rural areas, uh, lower cost of livings, and they can get to work on pretty much any, any place in the world that they'd want. Um, so it's, you know, maybe we start looking at what we can do in, in a competitive space from the software team versus some of the hardware team that needs to be there to, to build things. And that's, that's a challenge for us as, as a business. Uh, but then long term, like the effects of the, the pandemic, you know, the, the one thing I always heard is like, well, travel is never going to be the same afterwards. But they said that, you know, when the, the, 
dot-com bubble burst, when 9-11 happened, when the financial crash in 2008 happened, you know, and it was at its highest levels before this. It's going to come back. There's a growing middle class uh, in, in large parts of the world that are want to experience the world, want to see the world. Um, and I think the biggest thing about a Hyperloop is that when you connect these places, like, like for example, in Missouri, you know, you have Kansas City, you have St. Louis. They're about three and a half hours apart right now. You can connect those in 30 minutes. And now all of a sudden you have basically a seven or 8 million population center in the Midwest connected faster than you can get across uptown, you know, New York. And so you could create like a, the dynamic that exists on the, the population centers on the East and West coast. You can connect that in the heartland. And then you could more importantly, like, you know, there's lots of things I like about Los Angeles, but there's lots of things I love about Colorado too. And that ability to have this kind of quick, on-demand type of setup back and forth, I think is going to allow people to work in some of these more remote settings. And maybe when they have to come in the office two or three days a week, not five days anymore, they're going to be able to do that from a more disparate or more distant uh, place. And I think that's only going to be enabled if the transportation mode is fast and it's economical. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. So we have a question from a member of our audience about the ability to use existing infrastructure. So existing rail lines, existing highway routes, is that going to be something that we can do to accelerate the build out of mass uh, infrastructure for Hyperloop? Or is it going to be a heavier lift where we're having to dig or build new uh, areas where we run the Hyperloop tubes through? I think in the cities, you're probably going to have to start, you know, the, the benefits of, of the cities are getting to the city centers, right? Or connecting to the existing infrastructure that might be there. So that's probably going to be where you do some tunneling. Our tunnels are a lot smaller than high-speed rail tunnels um, with a much higher level of service. But the other thing that's really interesting, that route I talked about in Missouri on that highway corridor is basically along the I-70 highway. Right. And the majority of what we're doing, because we're inside of a tube, we need a much smaller width, much smaller right-of-way. And you could actually put it in the highway median. Um, right. The fact that we can bank like an aircraft instead of like a train means we can go higher speeds on tighter right-of-ways. Like we're looking at one between Chicago, Columbus, and Pittsburgh. And you can use existing right-of-ways as much as possible. Um, so you won't necessarily be able to build on the infrastructure that's there. You do need new infrastructure, but you could build on the existing right-of-way, which would mean this would actually be quite a bit faster to get in than having to go, you know, not in my backyard type of, of, of setup. So we have another question from our audience about what it's like working with Elon Musk. So is he as smart as everybody thinks he is? You know, Tesla, after a brief dip in terms of its market value, is now trading back at all-time highs. He helped lay the groundwork for Hyperloop technology. He's building one of the preeminent space exploration companies in addition to the work that he's doing with Tesla. So what's it like working with him? And is, is he the genius uh, that we all think he is? He's a... Uh... He, I mean, I certainly learned a lot from, from him and then certainly watching him do his thing. And the, the thing I think is really profound that I've really tried to adopt is the, I'll say the steadfastness of his vision. Um, so when I first interviewed with him in 2008, you know, he told me in the interview process, like, uh, I want to make a rocket that can land 10 times, right? And that was... What did you think when he said that? Did you think he was crazy? Uh, I, was, I like the idea. I just never heard anybody say it, right? <laughs> right. And, and so 
10 years later, it did. And, and there was a reason. And, and the way he set out both the vision kind of for Tesla and for, for there and the way he stuck to it, I think has been, been remarkable. And I think Tesla's probably, you know, the, the most interesting one is that you see the, the struggle that some of the other big OEMs are having right now because they have the supply chain that's based on internal combustion engines. They're trying to move it over to electric. And that same thing that made them so successful for the last, you know, 100 years is also the same thing that's making it really hard for them to shift the next piece. And you look at Tesla, Tesla's been building electric cars for like 15, almost 20 years now. And the other car companies have really only been doing it for maybe three, four or five. Right. And so the way they pick the certain technologies to invest in first, like the battery technology, I think has been really, really exciting. And so when you look at what we're trying to do, um, you know, a Tesla can always pull over if something goes wrong, a Hyperloop can't. And so when you start to say, where does the future look? Uh, you know, when we want to electrify aircraft, when we want to electrify these things, an aircraft can't pull over. So the systems that we're building for Hyperloop are going to be some of those first type of fully electric uh, safety critical type of systems. And so I think, you know, we're starting that. We started that a couple of years ago, and we're going to be at the forefront of that for the next like five or 10. And that's going to give us a huge opportunity. But the thing I really appreciate is like the bit, the grandness, the boldness of his vision. But there's lots of people that you see, you know, that have vision. There's much fee, like maybe two orders of magnitude less that actually are able to execute. And I think that's a testament to his ability to find the right teams that can actually execute that vision. And that's what set him apart. So let's talk about the future for Virgin Hyperloop. So you, you had the, the test track that was a, a smashing success. Your phone's ringing off the hook with people that are interested in investing. What are the next immediate goals uh, and what are the next milestones that you're looking to achieve? So we're looking to move from this two-passenger vehicle to this 28-passenger vehicle. Uh, and basically, as we do that, that's going to require kind of a scaling of infrastructure, scaling of the safety, the safety features to make sure we can do this. And the biggest thing is we showed two weeks ago that we can make a vehicle or a vehicle can work. And now we need to show that a fleet of vehicles must work. And that's really kind of that biggest, the biggest difference that, that we need to move um, so we're, you know, we need more capital to do that. So we'll probably be at some point out in the, the fundraising space. I think I've been keeping an eye on the SPAC space. That's been pretty fascinating to me to see, you know, how that, like compared to two years ago with like the ICE, uh, coin offerings right. versus what SPACs are doing and how companies with long runways, with big ambitions, how they're bridging some of their valley of death gaps to get to where they need to go. So I think that that's actually fairly interesting. Um, but really right now it's about finding that person that's going to look across the table and say, I, I like the value of this technology. I like what it could bring. Um, because that, that last question those investors were, were asking us was, show me, a, show me a project. And I think we've, we've, we've checked off all of these other boxes and really how can we get in the next really year, two years, how can we sign up for that, that first project? Because once we get operating, once we get all of the learnings that come from that, it's going to transform the, you know, our analytics team, our machine intelligence team with all the data that we could, we could get. And so it's project, it's the regulatory piece. And then probably soon it's about how do we scale? We're about a 300 person company. Now uh, we're building, we're building the airport, the airplane, the air traffic control and the sky all at the same time with less than you know, about 230 engineers. Uh, While so you're trying to fly the plane, you know, yeah. <laughs> as they say. 
So Josh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully we can be helpful from a SALT perspective in terms of connecting you with those people who, who understand the power of this vision. It's a pleasure to have you on SALT Talks. And maybe next time we have our SALT Conference in Las Vegas, which is our traditional home for our annual conference, we can bring some people over and do a, a, a test track ride uh, on, the, on the system you guys have built out there in I the think, desert. Uh, we would definitely love to have you guys at site. But uh, it's, it's, it's magical. You can, you can touch, feel, lick, whatever you want to do. It's, uh, it's a visceral experience. All right. Hopefully the licking can be safe <laughs> after the pandemic is over. Yes. But the, all the other stuff sounds good. Josh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you.